0: It's episode 89 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program is Ryan Powell. He's the head of user experience for Waymo, the self driving car company that spun out of Google. We're going to talk about what it's like to design the actual experience of something that feels like science fiction. Ryan, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you, Jeff. I'm super excited about this because I'm just fascinated by all of this technology. But I want to start with a little story about back when I was uh, building Typekit, the font service on the web. This is like 10 years ago now. Uh, But one of the type designers that we worked with was a guy named Mark Simonson. uh, And he had created many, many beautiful fonts. But I distinctly remember one time when we were talking that he told me the story about uh, work that he did designing all the typography for the computer screens that were used in the Star Trek movies. So whenever one of the officers on the bridge, you know, is like tapping on one of their displays, that was all him, right? Yeah, yeah. he did all that stuff. And I always thought like, wow, what a fun challenge that would be. Like you're creating actual interfaces for stuff that just doesn't exist, right? And then so so when I heard like, you know, I was introduced to you and I was like, oh, we should do this podcast. I was like, oh, wow. Like this feels like they, it feels like we're in a world of science fiction, like cars that drive themselves, right? That's, you know, like. Jet packs and silver suits and and all of the stuff we grew up with, uh, but you're actually making the interface to something that that we you know a short number of years ago could not even imagine.
1: Uh, you know, you're making robot sh- chauffeurs. That's incredible. Well, I mean, we certainly um, feel very fortunate, you know, to be in the space. And it's funny that you bring up that example because um, that's long been sort of my secret, you know, um, backup job that I've (laughs) wanted to do is design all of those really cool interfaces for TV and movie. And so I can definitely relate with the Star Trek example. He said it was super cool because,
0: I mean, you essentially imagine designing with like some art direction, but no constraint. Right. Like it's, it's not <laughs> exactly. really even designed. It's, it's just art at that point, but that stuff is just, it's so wild and, and must be just a joy to be able to do that kind of stuff. Uh, but you are, you're, you're, you're designing, you're researching, you're leading a team for some of the, just the, the, you know, the stuff that we, like I said, like we couldn't even imagine. I don't even know, like where, where do you even start? Look, I tell you what, let me, let me ask you, how did you get? sort of into this position what sort of led up to this uh, particular role
1: well i guess when i kind of look back at the stops along my career i think there's been this natural sort of gravitation to this intersection of emerging technology and uh, you know and, and people and sort of bringing that new technology to a large number of folks. Mm-hmm. And so even when I think back to what I was doing at Motorola for example, this was back, you know, around 2004 right when the Razor was just kind of coming out and you know, pre-iPhone days, there were you know, we had there was a lot of interesting work going on in the space around you have this mobile device, you can do things like messaging and of course take pictures, but then we were at the cusp of all these other types of, of Mm. use cases that you can do with that little thing that you have in your, in your hand or in your pocket. And so, you know, I'd say starting early on from Motorola and then after Motorola, I went to Xbox and that was at the time where they were just ready to, um, bring the their, you know, connect their gestural interface out of incubation and uh, take it into market and so they were trying to answer a lot of interesting questions around how does a gestural interface kind of work in the living room how do you combine a voice with that as well and again these this was pre sort of, you know, having um, the Google Assistant be across a bunch of devices in, in your home and so for me it feels like, it, you know, it's been sort of a natural step, you know, I was lucky because I was at Google um, already And I was working on a team that was very much focused on the, you know, trying to transform the way that people pay. And so, you know, think all things sort of Google pay. Uh And, you know, again, I'm sort of, I think, maybe attracted to things that also integrate themselves into people's everyday lives. And so um, that's another appealing thing. But, yeah, I just I I reached out to the team. I noticed that they, um, you know, the team was starting to grow. And uh, just started some conversations there. And, yeah, one thing led to another. And now four years later, you know, the um, uh, it's been a great ride so far. And it's it's been, you know, I feel no really pun fortunate intended. to be in a space. <laughs> yeah, no pun intended, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So what's the team like? I, I would like to think of us as a, um, you know, not unlike what you might see at, at, at for other product design teams. And so about, about half the team our uh, researchers and about half are designers and on the research side you could break that into uh, qualitative research and quantitative research on the on the design side we have uh, a mix of designers and so we have people that are of course come from very you know, deep product design backgrounds. Mm. We also are working partnered with our marketing and our brand team. As you can imagine, our brand, you know, we're we're a newer company and just trying to become sort of like a household name and and really kind of grow the brand is is something that we also partner with on, on the marketing side. And then we also have a group of designers who are very very passionate about internal tools and so as you can imagine the 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 uh, engineering process for you know for how self-driving cars actually get built is super interesting and that f- also follows through on the you know the actual workflow if you're an engineer and you're you know making a, a change to our code base and you are you know going to submit that into a release that actual workflow is is super interesting and so you can imagine there is a wide um, there's a cool tool set that's used internally as well that we also uh, focus on.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I hadn't actually considered that. But there's also a a tremendous number of visualizations that I I have seen sort of little screenshots here and there of like what the car sees and, and stuff like that. I imagine a lot of design work goes into that.
1: Yeah, it totally does. Um, uh, our actually, our lead designer who focuses on all of the internal tool stuff, she comes from Morningstar, for example, mm. which you probably know, has like a deep history in um, you know the, the visualization of really complex you know information, and that's a huge part of what we do, both on the consumer side and internally on the on the tool sets that we work with.
0: Yeah. 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 That's great. Um, Cool. So I'm sure we'll have more questions about how the team works and and all of that kind of stuff, but it would be uh, interesting to hear you talk about the problem you're trying to solve here. I, I, have a long background uh, in essentially like livable cities and advocacy around cycling. Cycling was has always been a big part of my life. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of LA. Uh, it was very clear to me, you know, pretty early on that like you didn't get to participate in society if you didn't have a car. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is not only like from an accessibility point of view, there are plenty of people that simply can't drive. But I also Realized once I moved into bigger cities uh, like San Francisco, and now I live in London, that it's super dangerous. Like, you know, we give up so much of our city to, like, literally the square footage of our city dedicated to areas where you could just die by walking, right? And so I always felt really strongly about that. I was always very involved in the San Francisco Bike Coalition and, you know, things like that. Of, Let's just find the right balance, which is, I think, one of the reasons why I'm so attracted to this. To the problem you're trying to solve, which is primarily, it feels like one of safety.
1: It is. I mean, that's a that's a big um, that's a that is at the heart of everything that we do at Waymo, and it's one of the things that you know that we feel very good about internally because it's a big part of our internal culture, yeah. and I think everybody is really driven by you know by that that mission. Um, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of of Ohio, and it was sort of you know similar in the sense that you know you started driving as you know the minute that you could get that driver's yeah. license, and then kind of like you know um, your permit and all those types of things. And so, what I guess the first thing that maybe that comes to mind for me is the fact that I think what motivates the team um, and we as designers is that we are bringing self-driving technology to the masses. And so it's not about just sort of designing a, you know, an expensive $100,000 car that people in the, you know, in Silicon Valley are going to have access to. It really is an opportunity to bring self-driving, you know, technology to everyday people and that's what I think, you know, we're doing for example in, in Phoenix. And so a big part of what we're trying to do in these early days is that we know that almost everybody of, you know, and I think it's safe to say everybody that that rides with us to today, it is their first experience in a self-driving car. And so a big part of what we focus on is really trust. And how do we foster trust between our technology and our riders? That's what we kind of see as really sort of, you know, um, the first sort of, you know, really high level goal that we're trying to do in these early days.
0: Yeah, it really is. I mean, we talk a lot about trust in design and and like even All the way down to like how how the way in which you present your brand can can be a signifier to whether somebody is willing to say use their credit card with you, right? All the way through every interaction you have. But this is a whole, this is your personal safety at risk, right? Like um, in a technology that is brand new to everybody. So that level of trust that you need to develop simply through. You know, the entire environment that you're creating inside the vehicle and outside the vehicle, I would imagine, is pretty significant.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know, for example, in Phoenix, that most people's experience with Waymo actually happens outside the vehicle for the first time, whether they're like another road user, say they're in their Mm. car driving and they're interacting with their Waymo. And so exactly that, you know, that that trust sort of adoption model starts, you know, even before you download the app or you take your first ride. And so that's very much how we think about it. When we think about trust, one of the things you can imagine on the research side that we're interested in is how do you. How do you sort of, um, you know, what is that journey when it comes to, you know, trust building between a writer and, uh, and, our, and our technology? And what are things that we can do to kind of help people along that trust curve? And then, of course, what are things that, you know, that, that might happen where, um, you know, we want to be careful that we aren't sort of eroding trust. And so you can imagine like one of the things that we spend a lot of time looking at would be driving comfort, for example. And so how quickly do we accelerate? One mm. of the things, you know, that you, you know, when you're in a car that's driven by a human and you have a driver up front, you might not notice, you know, things like acceleration as much as you would when there's no driver there. And so then, you know, we, we kind of ask a lot of questions around like, okay, well, we, do, we, we made some assumptions on, you know, the rate of acceleration based on what humans do today, but maybe we actually need to dial it back a little bit when it's a self-driving car versus having sort of, you know, the comfort of of, of that human up there. And so you can imagine a lot of, you know, uh, you know a lot of what we do is, is spending time observing people in the context of a self-driving ride to sort of see how we can uncover some of these moments. Because the other challenge, of course, that we have is that we can't just go out and ask people sort of what they think that they might need or what their needs might be, you know, in a self-driving car.
0: Right. Nobody would have the first clue. That, right, like right. their needs would be. I'd really like to try it once. <laughs> you know, like it's probably right. uh, about what you would get. Hmm, that's really interesting. So even like the acceleration curve, it you know, which you'd think is like something the engineers would just work out, but no, that's really a fundamental part of the user experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we think I'd say maybe on the research side, you could break the work into maybe two large areas. The first one would be around just your interaction with a self-driving car, whether again, you're on the outside, you know, as a pedestrian interacting with that car or another driver, or you're actually inside the car taking a ride. And so that's a big area for us that we spend a lot of time thinking about. And then you you could think about then there are all all the sort of normal kind of like go to market questions that any early stage company would have and so when it comes to, for example, retention, you know, what are, what are the factors that we think affect retention? What can we do on the user experience side to increase retention? Of course, we look at, you know, things like a, our typical sort of adoption funnel and one, you know, making, trying to understand where people are dropping off and what we can do to, you know, um, you know, correct for some of those, those things, much like, again, like any kind of early stage company would, would do.
0: Interesting. So let me, let me back you up just a little bit. You've mentioned Phoenix a couple of times. You're in the market there. There is, is it, is it like anybody can sign up and just start using it in that market or, or how, where are we today?
1: Yeah, so we 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 are in Phoenix. We are operating um a service of course with the pandemic and COVID, we've paused um having uh pa- external passengers be uh-huh. in the vehicles and we're kind of cautiously coming back online. But, you know, that aside, we do have a service that's up and running. It's it's called Waymo One where we have thousands of people that are using the service and we it's a mixed fleet. So we have um, some cars that are completely empty. And so when you hail that car, it will it'll show up and there will be nobody in the car and it will take you from point A to point B. And then we have um, some of our vehicles do have a safety driver in them. And um, again, the car is driving itself, but the, the persons that are kind of monitor the car and, um, you know, and that's, of course, important when we think about our software development process
0: yeah yeah wow that's interesting i didn't realize it was quite that far along and so uh so yeah you must be very excited to sort of get it when it's safe to do so back into back into operation um uh that's fascinating that's fascinating uh, so uh, just off the top of your head what have you sort of what have you observed from the the months or or however long it's been since you've been running
1: yeah um well we've had we've actually had an early writer program in um in Phoenix since April of 2017. And so a good way to think about that program for us is it's basically a cohort of writers who have agreed to sort of help us um, learn more about early features. And so Mm -hmm. we've been fortunate now that we've had that program, you know, since that time. And so for us, it's really been a large scale user research program where we've been able to learn, um, you know, learn a lot. I would say that um, what we have found is is that people are really excited about self driving technology, and they their their trust or their 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 trust with the technology actually starts at a pretty high level, and so what that means is is that we have found that we um you know don't have to do as much work as we thought we might initially in terms of getting people to feel sort of comfortable and safe and secure when they're in the vehicles. You know, a big part of what we do on the user experience side, as part of that, is we think it's important for us to be transparent around what the car can see and what its intent is. And that kind of goes a long way towards building trust. And so, but for example, if you were to ride in one of our vehicles uh, in Phoenix, you would see the interface in the back of the vehicle. and what you would see there is you basically get to see what the car can see around it. And then there are moments where we've found that where we, we provide more information around what the car's intent is. And that's because you know you can you'll, you'll be sitting sort of in that middle row in, um, in our vehicles. And it's not always apparent sort of what the car might be responding to when you are you know, looking outside the vehicle. I usually use the example of you know, the fact that like, our cars can see 360 degrees, and of course we can't as, as humans. And, but if we could, we would probably navigate space a little bit differently than we do today when we're driving a car. And so we spend a lot of time on the research side kind of looking for these, we call them sort of like look up moments. Like when is somebody going to look up from what they're doing? Like maybe they're on their phone Mm -hmm. and they kind of just might have a question as around what the car might be doing. And so that's, you know, that those types of moments is is when we try um, through the passenger screen interface, try to be there with the information that will help them understand, you know, that the car is is waiting for it might be yielding to a, a cyclist that's in front of us before we, you know, move ahead, those types of things.
0: All right, we're going to take a little break now and hear from a new sponsor of the show, and that is our friends over at Stackbit. Uh, Stackbit offers developer tools that enable inline content editing, live previews of content changes, and sharing of real-time previews, and a lot more all on their Jamstack site. Uh, All of this supports the tools that developers already use and doesn't require any code changes. That's why Stackbit is a great way to Jamstack. That's a development architecture Based on client-side JavaScript and reusable APIs and pre-built markup. So uh, Stackbit lets content editors make changes and preview how they look right on the page so that they can know how their content changes will impact the page that they're going to go on. And you don't need to go through a big publish process and a bunch of rebuilding of websites and stuff like that. Content editors can also share real-time previews of content changes and Stackbit works With their existing tools. So this includes static site generators you might be using or headless CMSs and all different kinds of deploy solutions, whatever you're using. Try StackBit's editing and collaboration features right now via their site builder. Go to StackBit.com, that's S-T-A-C-K-B-I-T.com and click the try now button and create a Jamstack site in just a couple of minutes. So It'll be built using modern tools and services, uh, things like Gatsby, Sanity, Netlify, GitHub, all of them. Right. So, uh, once again, create your site today in just minutes at Stackbit.com. Thanks to Stackbit for their support of Presentable and all of Relay FM. All right. So, uh, you had just started mentioning some of the kind of the experience that people will have inside the car, uh, I, and you kind of broke it down into kind of. I guess, internal and external, like the, the two, two experiences that people will have. But I want to start with internal. Like I get in a car and uh, I've seen the photos of, of the, you have these minivans, right? Um, and, uh, and there's a screen, but you also have some physical buttons. And that must have been a very explicit choice. There's like start the ride or pull over or call for help or there are a couple other ones too that I don't remember. But uh, tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so we do. Um, we do have a. Um, there is a, a button pod that's in the headliner in the vehicle, and there are. There's the start ride button that's there. There's a pullover button that's there as well, and then there is a, a button where you can contact our, our rider support agents. So you can think of that very much like an OnStar like experience where a human yeah. you know yeah. can come on and uh, you know if you have questions or if you if you need anything um and then of course we do have the screens that are in the backs of the um the front seats and there's an interface there and you can also you know do those same functions on the um on the screen in front of you. What we found is that most people, because that screen is very front and center, that's primarily the way that people interact with the vehicle inside with those buttons. And you could think of the headliner buttons as just being there if you um, you know, just needed uh, another yeah. sort of set, of set of buttons.
0: It seemed to me that it was almost like there's a physical affordance there for the things you want to make sure you know you have right? Like I can talk to a person, I can get this car to pull over and I can literally push the button, you know, um, that seemed, that seemed to me like, again, that, that trust conversation.
1: Yeah. That's part of it because, you know, there are those buttons, of course, being physical by nature, they're just omnipresent. They're there at, at all times, but there's a practical consideration there too. The buttons have braille on them, for example. Ah. And so if you have a visual impairment, you know, it's, it's going to be, um, in a lot of cases, that's going to be your primary way to to start the vehicle versus trying to do something on the screen in front of you.
0: And so you mentioned earlier the, um, the these look-up moments, right? Like, uh, oh, something just happened. What's going on? And since I can't ask a driver, or I, I might even have a question because there is no driver, right? Whereas before, i just assume he's just doing something, right?
1: Um, right. Then
0: how do you sort of... C- anticipate that and communicate that with the screen in front of them.
1: Right. So that's what a, lo- that's a lot of the work that we do on the research side. You can imagine, I'm sure, you know, your audience is very familiar with, um, you know, we, we borrow a lot of methods from, from the social sciences. So mm-hmm. we do a lot of ethnography where yeah. we spend a lot of time just observing people taking rides um, when we, you know, recruit research participants. And those are the moments that we're looking for. And so that's that. And then, you know, like in a situation like that, we'll kind of go back and sort of uh, untangle that a little bit. So an example would be a common one that we find is, is when it comes to construction sites. A lot of people kind of, you know, have questions around. What does the car actually understand in, in, in front of it? You know, there's, a, there's a, there could be a set of construction cones there. There could be a construction worker that's directing traffic. And how is the car going to behave, you know, in this situation? And so those are moments that we've seen in research where we want to make sure that we're representing um, what the car can understand on that screen, on the interface to reassure riders. So the classic example would be the actual traffic cones we yeah. We turned those on in the UI a while back, and it it it, it i'll be honest it's we kind of <laughs> chuckle a little bit every time we hear one of our research participants mention these traffic cones because it is just this small example of how people um you know r- really you know kind of uh, under- you know get that the car understands these details mm. and how they can navigate um you know the space
0: so in many ways it's like you're helping. Like, match the mental model to the system model, right? You're saying, like, the car is doing this because it sees cones. So, we're going to show you cones so you know what the car knows.
1: Yeah, in a way, like, that what we're doing there is we're kind of indirectly telling you that that's what the car can see. And that's probably why the car is taking this trajectory. What we often think about, you know, it with the passenger screen interface the model that we strive for is one where you mentioned it earlier, where you have a human driver that's in the car, you might ask that driver, you know, like, Hey, you know, like, uh, why aren't we moving? Or, uh, you know, why are we taking this route for example? And, um, but there, then that's like an example of direct communication or actually being able to ask that human a, a question, but then there's a lot of communication that happens, you know, that is not, um, it's not verbal. And so you might just notice that the human driver That 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 person's gaze might be fixed on on something or in that might give you a sense of like, okay, we're not moving because he's watching, you know, the jogger in front of us. And so that's what we think about um, when we think about that interface is almost being a proxy for the type of direct or indirect communication that happens between riders and human drivers today.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. You know, when I ask the cab driver here in London why we're not moving, he's always because the idiots in City Hall have torn up all the roads again. So maybe, <laughs> right. Maybe you've got a layer, you know, like how people put different voices on their GPS. Maybe you can get to that in a future version, where you can get a little sarcasm. Exactly. To, I don't know.
1: Um, no, we do. We do have. Yeah, we do have. Um, th- that's that is an idea that is is um, always kicked around internally. Could we have sort of guest? Um, you know, um, um, actors come in and, and do something kind of fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, I bet. That's great. Um, there's a really interesting thing I read. I think it was something you wrote about how you use music as a way to kind of start and end the journey and how there's audio cues that guide people through the whole experience. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, we definitely think about the the ride or being inside of a Waymo as being a, a multi-sensory experience. And so we don't want to over-index on the information that we're showing you on that visual interface. I, you know, maybe it's because my significant other is is a sound designer and maybe I've just been, this has been, you know, um, drilled into me at home. But I think as designers that we often are relying too much on visual interfaces or Mm. on what people can see and we aren't taking advantage of other senses. And so we very much think about, you know, what you can hear and that being part of the interaction model. So when you get into the car, one of the things that we just found early on is it's kind of weird to get into a self-driving car you know that's completely empty and it's completely silent and so we have a um, you know what I would call maybe a a soundscape or a track that we play when you enter the vehicle that just provides just enough of a background um, you know sort of uh, ambient music that it doesn't feel creepy and weird that you're getting into this you know silent car and so that's where it kind of starts you know that you first thing that you would hear. And then um, what we're doing is we're using a combination of UX sounds or you know ear cons in, in combination with an actual voice as well to provide some feedback to riders throughout the journey. So the example of that is once you hit the start ride, we we tell you the car t- you hear a voice come on and and say that we're headed to, you know, 123 Main Street and that's just to reassure the rider again that we know the destination because the last time they told us that was when they, you know, put it into the app. Right. Of course they saw it on the screen before they hit that start ride button, but it's just a nice little reassurance that the car is headed to, you know, where they want to go. Another example could be maybe mid-trip you want to change your destination for whatever reason and you do that with the app. And so it's another way for us to, again, provide some reassurance that, you know, once we receive that update, the car tells you that, you know, we're rerouting and going to, you know, the, the new destination. And so and we speak that, that instead of relying just on the interface that you see um, in, in front of you. I mean, we're careful because we think that a big part of the value proposition of a self-driving car is the fact that you don't have that human driver. It is your yeah. own space to kind of do whatever you want. And so we don't want it to be this lean forward experience. We want it to be very much, a you know, a lean back experience. So we're very careful about how we use sound and voice throughout the ride so that we don't, you know, we don't intrude on that space. So
0: you've got to be thinking ahead a few versions, let's call them, to when you think about the interior of the vehicle, right? Because, you know, all the pictures I've seen, there's still a steering wheel, there's still front seats, right? All of that is there. It is, it is clearly... A dr- a drivered vehicle that's been adapted. You must be starting to think about the physical space and how you could adapt it into something that's truly autonomous.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we did have the prototype that we built. Um, you know, that sort of predated my time on the team, but we, you know, we we did build a a, a car that didn't have pedals yeah, or steering yeah, wheels. A little smiley yep, car was right yeah internally we called it the firefly but yeah it, it's um you know the the very friendly looking vehicle and of course it was intentionally designed that way by our industrial design team to be very approachable and and look like something that you'd want to hop into. But um, yeah, you're right. We are thinking about, you know, the, in, the inside space, but the model at, at Waymo is very much that we're focused on building the driver and that we we do see, um, you know, we do want to have a, a, a very heavy partnership with, um, with car makers because oh, yeah. when it comes to designing cars, you know, they are the expert. And, and so it's, it's very much a collaboration when we think ahead to the future. That's very humble for a Silicon Valley company. Well, I'd like to think that we are pretty humble and, you know, and I, maybe I think we've inherited that a little bit from, from the, you know, from the Google side of the house. But yeah, we do very much think that way. Um, as we think about the future you know there have been people that are making cars for a very long time and and we definitely want to want to partner and we see you know kind of a win-win for that type of a partnership yeah that makes a lot of sense uh let's take
0: another quick break uh we'll be right back and this episode of presentable is also brought to you by our friends at pingdom from solar winds when you're listening to this podcast how would you know if your website had gone down? Would you know if customers couldn't click that buy now button or access your content? You might stumble across a problem by luck, but that's no good. You need a system. You need something to tell you that everything is running smoothly on your site. And more importantly, when it's not, you need Pingdom. Pingdom detects around 13 million outages every month. That's more than 400,000 outages every day. Pingdom helps keep your sites and the sites you love online. It doesn't matter if you're a startup or a Fortune 500 company. You need alerts about any critical website issues. They'll let you customize how you're alerted depending on the severity of the outage. Plus, they'll track and analyze your website's load time so you can see what's affecting the user experience. If you have a site of any size, you need Pingdom. And Pingdom has a no-fuss approach to getting started. All they need is your URL that you want to monitor and they'll take care of the rest. Go to Pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. And when you sign up, use the code PRESENTABLE at checkout, and you'll get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and all of RelayFM. All right, so one of the things uh, that designers always have to do is to consider the sort of unexpected in their app. What do we do if, right? I can't imagine the list of what you might have for for what could occur inside of the car. For I mean the simplest of like somebody falling asleep, uh somebody having a medical emergency, that kind of stuff. Like how do you how do you work through all of that? And, and what are some of the other things that you've had to consider?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I think what is helpful for us as we think about that is the fact that we do have a service that's up and running and that we've been very careful about how quickly, we, you know, or how I should say, um, how, how we've taken a very considered approach around how we scale that service so that we make sure that we're learning about these different scenarios and that we can, you know, we can make refinements to how we're thinking about the user experience. Probably a good one is, well, uh, there is, you know, we, we, we do think about this situation where somebody has fallen asleep and, um, you know, and that's why we have this writer support team where, you know, at the touch of a button, somebody can come in and help. We would know that if in that scenario, like if you arrived at your destination and the Door didn't open after a certain amount of time. That there's probably something up, and so. We, you know, there is a way for our rider support agents in that scenario to kind of, um, you know, call into the vehicle and and make sure that everything is okay. Another example probably is like what happens when the car, when a self-driving car gets a flat tire. That's like ah, a good one that I like sure. to think about. You know, you're going to your destination, but midway through, something's happened with the vehicle. And so that's one you can imagine. I mean, we spent, um, you know, the team recently spent some time thinking through that scenario where, you know, all the way from the beginning of that experience to the end, you know, what are the first things that we need to like, that the interface needs to communicate to you? What does, you know, when we think about the writer support agent, that's going to come on, you know, and, and have a conversation with you, what are the, what's the messaging there and what do they need to do to reassure writers that we do understand the situation and, and that we're going to get them, you know, safely to their destination. So you can think about that little mini user journey and all this kind of you know, breaking that apart and trying to uncover what people's needs are, uh, in those moments and, and then trying to design for those. I mean, that's, we, we take a very user-centered approach when we think about, um, you know, how we, how we design for those things.
0: And I guess a lot of it is just going to be hours and hours and thousands of hours of, of things running so that you can see sort of all the eventualities that could, could take place. It really just a matter of time, I guess.
1: Yeah, exactly. Especially when it comes to, you know, different sort of questions or the information that riders have. I mean, we can do some prototyping, you know, and we can it's it's, of course, you know, we would never on public roads sort of simulate a flat tire. Um, And so, you know, but we do have a closed track um, where we can do types of testing like that and we have done user research before where the environment's a little bit more controlled um but you know and as most designers know that you can definitely learn some things from those types of prototyping uh you know experiments but um you know the the real world also is going to bring in some factors that you have to account for as well
0: don't you have a like a a former army base or something like that where you do like all these simulations and testing
1: Yes. It sounds way cooler than it actually is. I kind of pictured it being, you know, pretty like, um, you know, something you'd see like in, you know, um, what is it? Area 37 or area 57, like yeah, the right, desert. Right, right. I mean, it is in a pretty desert like environment. Um, it's more like, uh, yeah, it, it, and it, it's a military, you know, it, it isn't a former air force base and, we do um, a a lot of testing out there. I expected it to be, you know, kind of like this elaborate sort of, um, you know, faux city with, uh, you know, with, um, you know, having local people kind of come in and sort of like, you know, um, pretend that they're actually in this little city but like the Truman it, it's, show it's a, right <laughs> exactly exactly like the Truman show but um no it's a little it's a little less um you know far fetched than that but we do we do you know testing out there every day and it is it is something that we've leveraged in the past
0: so we talked a lot about sort of the internal experience like I'm in the car and this is all the stuff that's happening and and being fed back to me and things like that but but tell me a little bit about the external right there's two and and I think of it I think you you alluded to this. There is both the like, uh, I got it, this car has to come to me and I got to find it and I got to hail it and all the sort of that nonverbal interaction that happens between me and the driver when I got an Uber or a cab or something. There's that part of it, but there's also like you are now essentially a citizen of the transportation infrastructure and you have to be a good citizen and you have to play by the rules. And there's so, I don't know, there, there seems so much like inter driver communication that now, uh, doesn 't quite exist, you know waving somebody on or you know giving them the finger or whatever like so tell me a little bit more about that, like the car in the world,
1: yeah, I mean we very much think of sort of the the cultural or the sort of social human factors that uh-huh. are involved with being you know like you said part of part of this environment where we have you know other people that we have to that we have to interact with, and so you can imagine we have experts at Waymo that are very, you know, they they they're experts on understanding, you know, what human driving behavior is like, you know, how quickly be, people are going to break in a certain scenario. Um, what is a typical sort of um, way that, you know, people are kind of kind of make make a left turn or a right turn. But th- what we try to bring to the table as. As designers and researchers, is we try to bring that human-centered lens um, to the problem space, so that we are able to talk about, for example, well, are, are there sort of, you know, in Phoenix, are there are there um, differences in the way that? A a crosswalk or um, red light behaviors happen versus maybe in the Bay Area, and that's what I mean. I know having lived in Chicago and Seattle, and now in the Bay Area, of course there are you know there are big differences. In in Seattle, you you just don't use your horn that often, and if you if you do, it's a pretty big deal if you honk at somebody. And that's you know you coming from LA probably would laugh at that. That you know it's not going to be the case you know in in a different city. And so those are the types of nuances that we are. Are, are tuning into so an example there would be maybe crosswalk behavior and what would be you know how do how how do people do does the behavior of of how people cross at intersections change from like a phoenix to the bay area wow. and what are some of those signals or some of those behaviors is very much what we're trying to bring to the table when the engineers are kind of working through um a problem space and they want to understand you know how to how to best um you know Uh, basically build out the car's behavior
0: you're going to need an entirely separate fork of your code base just for boston
1: (laughs) right (laughs) exactly exactly
0: wow no yeah that's super interesting um i hadn't quite considered that but yeah there's all the customs everywhere one of the things i have considered is just what i feel is gonna it's just gonna take so long to finally get to london because of the just the the craziness of the roads here, and not crazy in terms of the behavior of the drivers, but just in terms of there's so many times where uh, we will pull into a street, get halfway down the street, and then have to back all the way out to let somebody else through because it's just so tiny here. So a lot of work to do, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think every city, I mean, there, of course, there are, there are things that we can learn, you know, in a city that definitely apply to other cities, but every city um, definitely has its nuances when it comes to, to behavior
0: so uh, we talk on this podcast quite a bit about sort of the role of uh the designer in the ethical conversations that companies have um and how it feels more prominent it feels like designers as represent representatives of users in a user-centered design process tend to have tend to take a more empathic point of view uh, tend to be the ones tasked with thinking through the effect that that New technologies have on people, so I'm sure you think about this all the time. But like one of the things that 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 comes up all the time is is probably best embodied with Travis Kalanick, uh, you know, from Uber. I think it was back six, seven years ago, and he's talking to investors about how Uber is going to be profitable. And he's saying, you know, one day the the big problem or, or the big opportunity for us is to get rid of the other dude in the car right? Like mm-hmm. he was, he was essentially, and this shows you perhaps how, how far we have. I mean, it feels limited, but we have progressed a long way. Can imagine a CEO talking about just get rid of our employees with automation in a way that he felt comfortable doing that. But the the reality is like, um, we, we, we look a lot at, at what are the impacts on employment of automation. And I just wonder how you th- kind of, you think about this as maybe potentially more opportunity or, or a shift in, in how we think about transportation and especially when it comes to shipping goods and, you know, so many drivers and stuff like that. How do you think?
1: About yeah, I do think that designers take um, more of a, a, of an empathetic view on those types of issues. And I, I think we do feel a responsibility to be an advocate for, for people's needs I think that in combination with the fact that I've always been pretty optimistic about technology, and I do think that technology can be a benefit to society and can move things forward. And so I'd like to think of it as a way to where things may change, where there may be um, fewer human drivers, but I think that it, that opens up opportunities that we have yet to to be able to imagine or, or foresee. Uh, maybe a good example is our partnership with AutoNation and the fact that, you know, when you're, you know, a company like AutoNation, you might think to yourself, you know, what's our future or what's our way forward? And then, you know, you... you you know Waymo and AutoNation start talking, and it's like, hey, with AutoNation, you know, we can leverage them and have this partnership where they might be able to help us maintain a fleet of of autonomous vehicles. And suddenly, now you have this path forward for a company that they might not have necessarily, you know, been on their radar before. And that's an example of where I think technology has unlocked sort of a, a, a different way forward. So I'd like to think that you know i I think of it less of as sort of displacement or jobs going away and more of just an evolution of the types of jobs that um are available and having things that you know that aren't there today that that will be there because of the way you know things are- are are evolving
0: does the i wonder does the the company or or even your team have any kind of process in place for thinking through possible externalities right like we think about this all the time like i Uh, We've talked about this on the the podcast here frequently. Like, you know, did the team at Twitter have any possibility of anticipating the effect of the social media tools they were building 12 years ago or whatever uh, on, you know, the state of democracy today? Like, wow, how would you even go through a process like that? But we're starting to talk about that more in design teams and in bigger organizations of just like, all right, what, you know, essentially, can we stop for a minute, zoom out? and think what could go wrong, right? What what could happen, you know, in your case, autonomous vehicles and what what changes would happen to cities, both good, both bad, like, you know, how do you build that into a process?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a good question. The thing that I feel good about is that I think everything that we do at Waymo, whether it's on my team or, you know, across the company, Waymo takes a very considered approach to everything that we set out to tackle. What that means is, is that I think we have really strong teams internally that truly are multidisciplinary, where you have different disciplines, whether it be policy or legal or user experience or product or strategy that are coming to the table. And we try to take that multifaceted lens approach when we look at a problem. So that's sort of our baseline or, or where we start. But I will completely admit, it is difficult to kind of predict the future. I mean, we know at Waymo that these are very early days. And while we try to anticipate some of these changes or some of these needs that, you know, whether it be at like a city or municipal level versus all the way down, you know, to an to a individual rider um it is difficult to predict a lot of those things kind of way out into the future and so right now at least as we're we're trying to take a very considered approach and you know scale at a at a at a pace that um you know allows us to have some headroom to sort of tackle these things as they become you know more in focus Well, a couple of really
0: good things that i heard there one is many different disciplines having that seat at the table i think that's a big change for a lot of tech companies frankly it used to just be very very technical people focused on very technical solutions and i think that's changed i think we're getting a lot more 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 of the liberal arts at the table you know what i mean uh so i think that's pretty cool and then also this this acknowledgement of we want to work in the communities that we're in right i mean the sort of early history of uber of of essentially taking that slash and burn approach like uh we're just going to do it take us to court we'll solve it there i think that has changed a lot in our industry And so both of those things, I think, really showing a lot of maturity, or at least the first steps towards maturity. I'm optimistic as well when it comes to that kind of stuff. Ryan, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you being on the show.
1: Yeah, well, thanks, Jeff, so much for having me. Uh, You know, time has flown by here. I can't believe it's, you know... um... That we've you know, been chatting for, the, <laughs> for just about 45 minutes here, or so it's gone by fast. I, I've really enjoyed it, and I, I know that um, a lot of designers and researchers out there are very interested in what we're doing. I do want to mention that you know, we are hiring, so if you go to yes. wimble.com and good. check out you know, our open positions, we do, um, we do keep that up to date on a regular basis. Get your hands in there
0: to to help invent the future. Really, that's what an amazing opportunity that would be. All right, yeah. Uh, anywhere else? Where are you on Twitter? Um, I'm on Twitter at um, I am Ryan Powell. Good. I'll put a link to that as well in the show notes. Oh, and also uh, I will link to the uh, what is it? The Google Design Library. I was just uh, poking around there this afternoon, and there's great stuff in there.
1: Yep. That's one thing I always mention to folks that, you know, talking to us about joining the team is that, you know, we being part of Alphabet, we still have a connection to the Google design community and it's a great community and that's a great site. So um, folks should definitely check it out. Great.
0: Uh, I'll, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Ryan, thanks so much for being on the program. It was just really a joy. Thank you, Jeff. And that's another episode of Presentable.